welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr. Funkenstein. Here we have Dwayne Purvis, Big D from the Big D, although he might get offended because these Fort Worth people in <laughs> Dallas, it's this big rivalry. Whereas, you know, if you're from anywhere else in the country, you're like, come on. You're, you're, I don't. I don't think the rest of the country even knows that there's any kind of difference between Dallas and Fort Worth. I didn't until I first went to Dallas and someone's like, yeah, I live in Fort Worth. I'm like, oh, okay. So Dallas. And they're like, no. no, I, no. I can tell you the difference. I can tell you the difference. Fort Worth yeah. is where the West begins and Dallas is where the East peters out. I could see that actually. That's yeah. kind of neat. Yeah, that's perfect. Kind of neat. You know, so we always talk about our favorite our oil and gas cities to travel to, Jeremy. And, and Fort Worth doesn't always register as a, an oil and gas town, but it very much it, it is. I've always loved traveling there, and and I think it's because I'm more Fort Worth than I am Dallas, and <laughs> you know, it, just a little bit more casual. Um, I've always thought of Dallas as having a few more social rules, like we can't go to that restaurant because we're not dressed right, or we haven't done our hair just right. Yeah. Whereas Fort Worth, yeah. you can have a guy sit in a tuxedo sitting next to a guy with cut off shorts, right? See, this is this is why I love we how we, that we just jumped right into this because for me it's actually the opposite. Since I live in Colorado and it's all informalities and blue-haired waitress with you know nose rings and tattoos, that's kind of Fort Worth, right? So for me, I like Dallas when I go down there because it's like, oh, I have to be a little bit more dressed up here and fancy. But now Fort Worth seems right. like kind of fun. So Dwayne, am I off? Am I off on that, or is that uh, is that your take? No, that's that's pretty close, Tim. Uh, uh, I'll tell you, though, that Fort Worth is evolving some. Um, in the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a lot of um, a lot more wealth, it seems, in, in Fort Worth. And was, uh, we'll see in more of the North Dallas style um, in West Fort Worth now. And why? Do, what do you attribute that to? Is it, it just... Frankly, I, I attribute it to the Barnett Shell and TCU. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just pure speculation, but... okay. Um, I'll buy the, the Barnett, Barnett Jail thing. I'll, I'll buy that a lot. I can't give much credit to anything TCU. I know you're you're an <laughs> adjunct professor there, but uh, yeah. we'll go ahead and and uh, well, we'll touch on really, really good job of uh, promoting themselves. Yeah, and, that, and that's part of their image. It's the TCU image is a lot like the SMU image. And that that's how 100%. they present. Yeah, well, that's cool. I mean, and uh, I mean, I, it's obviously one of the more expensive choices you can make as a student going to, mm-hmm. um, you know, is it, since you're, all right. So Dwayne is an adjunct professor at TCU. I, and well, uh, what do you, what do you do there? Who, who I have a the question hell on are you, man? Who the hell is this on our podcast? <laughs> now, before we jump into that, Dwayne, I do want to get into your whole backstory and hear about okay. your adjunct professorship and all the other good stuff. My origin story. Your origin story. Yeah. But Tim, when, What's in the solo cup? Just kidding. But when Tim and I first sat down and said, we're doing a podcast, we each wrote down maybe like five or so names. And we're like, that's all we got. We got enough for 10 episodes. I don't know what to do. Well, the rest and- we were just going to have to carry with our beautiful <laughs> conversations, right? Here we are close to 70 episodes. And Dwayne Purvis was one of those guys, Tim. He was that's one right. of the original names you came up with. But for some reason, it just took till now. So I'm personally excited about today to hear the story you guys are yucking it up while i'm frustrated reading emails so i want to hear who is this man Dwayne purpose so let me, let me just tell you why i, I always wanted Dwayne. 
All right. So first we were classmates. I was a couple years ahead of him in school and, and I got to know him a little bit. And, you know, um, I've always given advice to people when they're going off to college, hang out with people smarter than you because, you know, good habits rub off every once in a while, they'll teach you something. I like to think I taught other people some things. Um, well, Dwayne was one of those guys. Now he was a couple years behind me. So I'd already had all the classes that he had, but I always recognized that this guy's bright. He knows a lot of stuff. And more importantly, he is so interested in actual learning stuff instead of just getting the grade and kind of moving on, which is, you know, might give you an indication of what I was doing. Um, but you know, it was, it was always so bright. And then when we, we reconnected after school, I think probably 10, 15 years later, and you know, I'm probably trying to sell him something. I don't know. Um, you can pretty much bring up any technical reservoir engineering topic and he's got an opinion and he'll correct your incorrect assumptions. And it's so well thought out. I mean, I, the guy's thinking about stuff all the time. And that's what got me was we can come up, bring him on and just start throwing topics at him. And he will have a learned opinion about that topic. Anyway, so I'm embarrassing him now, but I don't know. Yeah. So Dwayne, let, let's, let's go back to your origin okay. story. So, you know, what led you to a and the oil and gas industry? How did you, how did you get here? My dad was a preacher, so it was natural. Really? <laughs> my dad is a preacher. He, he retired last year after 51 years in the ministry. Wow. Right? I, he started when he was in college. He was, he'd drive uh, an hour on Sunday morning to preach at a little country church. And the only pay he got was a home cooked Sunday lunch. Fried chicken on Sunday afternoon. Right. In central Texas. Well, man. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I went to a public high school, public 5A. My dad took a job up in Fort Worth and I transferred to um, a swanky private school here, country day. And that was a, that was a hard shift, but my dad's, best friend uh, at the time turned out to be the president of Cauley Gillespie and Associates. Okay. Who, is, who you, you may know is one is that of the Dr. Large, Strickland? Dr. Strickland. Okay. So I'm trying to figure out what to do going off to college and I don't know. So he shows me what he does and I oh, well, that's, you know, it's pretty good. It's pretty interesting. Let's try that. And they gave me a nice scholarship. They were trying to rebuild the department after the 86 crash. I thought, I'll start there and we'll see what happens. Then I graduated there. <laughs> And I, I just never found anything I liked any better. But I tell you what, I really, really love petroleum engineering at this point and the industry. And, and well, it's interesting. I'm going to go back to the reason I chose petroleum engineering was, in fact, those scholarships. I had no mm -hmm. intent at all of going into yep. petroleum engineering, but I knew I yep. didn't want to be aerospace anymore. So I said, well, I'll go take some money from the petroleum engineering department for a year and then switch over to mechanical or civil or what was the other thing right. I wanted to go do. And Thirty years later, yeah, yeah, here I am. Mm -hmm. Was it Dr. Herbert? Doctor, I think it was Dr. Herbert. They brought out of retirement just to recruit students, to give them money. Yeah, that's. Yeah. That, it, I mean, they were giving money. Basically, I tell the joke, they were giving money away to people who took the SAT. Didn't matter what score you got. It was you took <laughs> it. That's during, not entirely come wrong. Come on in. He he gave Retirement. away two hundred scholarships to freshmen, and sixty of them graduated. He was giving, just giving money away to get anybody close. But I imagine that half, fully half of them, like you and me, weren't ever planning on doing it beforehand. Yeah. It's, it's crazy because, and remember, my class was the, we, I think we graduated, we probably had 25 in the class of 92. 
And I think your class was the first big one where mm-hmm. there yeah. were those 200 that started and 60 or so that graduated. Oh, yeah. and, and we call that big then. Now, 200 is the Yeah, is what, is the it? Norm. what is it now? At AM, they're trying to graduate 200 a year. 200 petroleum engineers? That's right. That's cool. How does that so, stack up to the other engineering, like at an engineering school like that? How does that stack up to, to chemies, mechanical engineers, whatever else? A lot else? smaller. A lot yeah. smaller. Oh, there's not a lot not more, the same okay. scale. Got yeah, it. you got to add a zero on all of that. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So I, I tell you what, there are 12 petroleum engineering programs in the country. Mines, uh, A&M, Montana Tech. Texas. Texas, Texas Tech. Tech. Yep. Yes, uh, all true. Uh, uh, Pitt, uh, uh, Penn uh, State. Marietta. 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 That's the oldest. Press, Jeremy. I'm, I'm good at things that don't apply to anything else in sort of the rest of the world. <laughs> yeah. No, there's um, uh, Louisiana. Um, Louisiana State. Louisiana State, for sure. Yeah. Um, I think there's a... Oklahoma. Oh, oh yeah. U.S. Uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. Oh, really? Oh, that would have not. Tim's Dr. like, gosh, darn it. I would have gone there. Or Chuck. Yeah, I, th- wow. I think it's Santa Barbara. U- and U of H? U of H? Okay. That makes oh, sense. yes, they do now. That's right. Yeah. Boulder Boulder by the Beach out in yeah. uh, Santa Barbara. So, no, that's that's awesome. I, I guess it makes sense because there's just not that many, you know, brand new entry-level type jobs for petroleum engineers these days. So. so- Oh, no. I'm going to tell you my Dr. Strickland story since you brought up that you, you kind of brought the name. I filled in the blank, but so, and I didn't realize I was competing with you on this, by the way, <laughs> since you, Uh-oh. I didn't realize you had such an in with Kali Gillespie, but I was, I, I did not have a job when I graduated. So I came back up to a and I don't know, to go to a, to go to some event or something. And uh, I went up and, and uh, Miss Pop, the uh, secretary up there at the petroleum engineering department said, no, uh, Dr. Strickland's interviewing today for, for, uh, incoming petroleum engineers. And I said, Oh shoot, I need to be in on that. So I'd basically yeah. barnstormed and interrupted his lunch and said, Hey, look, I, sorry, here's my resume. I didn't know you were here. I need an interview. And so I get the interview and we talk and he was impressed with my brashness, not enough to actually hire me, but you know, and then, you know, later that, later that next semester, I see that, uh, that, uh, um, Dwayne here is actually taking the position with Kali Gillespie. I was like, oh man. So, so it was actually a year later. I did something really what? weird. I graduated, walked the stage in 94, and then I went to live in Denmark for a year of study abroad. And oh. then I went to work. Wow. Yeah. Nice. What's that like? What, what, yeah. And why? Why? Um, I wanted the cultural experience. I wanted to broaden my horizons. So that sounds really cliche, but I was just really curious really interested to see um, more about how they live. And, you know, a a friend of mine from Denmark, uh, one of the other students, went from there to live in Korea. And he said something I think really insightful. He said, cultures are like personalities. Some you get along with and some you don't. Well, I just really jived Mm. with the Northern European um, Danish culture. Just really loved it. Really? That is very friendly people up there. (laughs) <laughs> not quite the right accent but yes I, but yeah, listen, no, anyways there was like a scandinavian or maybe a denmark couple in my small town in new hampshire no way nowhere yeah yeah just just one and he set up his whole estate i mean i say estate but up there real estate's not worth anything he set up this whole kind of area and it, it just felt european and he had all these different kind of flags up and it just sort of captured 
that essence. But I guess yeah. I did a terrible job imitating his wife's voice. Anyways. <laughs> Jeremy is wanna... not a master of accents. He tries all the time. He's that's not a master. Not, actually, that's not what I've been told by other people. I think it's part of the reason why Colin and Jake kept telling me to come on this podcast. Because I do two good accents. One of them's Boston kid. And you know that. Yeah. Yeah, I know that. And the other one's just generic Southern guy. <laughs> maybe, I think that's, Tixon, maybe Tixon, Tim. I think, <laughs> right. see, I think that's the key is you're generic Southern guy. So anytime anybody comes on anywhere in the South, he hits the same but, accent. But half my relationships are from people from the Northeast. So to them, it all, they don't get it. It all sounds <laughs> well, that's true. To you, they've got that Arkansas draw, and maybe that's a little slower. But in Texas, it's a little bit quicker. We got cities nearby. Anyways, well, there you I'm, go. I'm on stage. I want to go back to something. I want to go back to something, Dwayne, that, yeah. that really resonated with me. And I got stuck on it. Yeah. Also, you guys were talking about AM. I had no idea what you're talking about. I was like, it's inside. <laughs> okay. Whatever. Your father, yeah. 51 years, was a preacher man and, and traveled an hour, probably around the same years where my grandfather was a rabbi in New Jersey who did the opposite. So, because yeah. of the way that the Sabbath works for Jews, the more conservative they are, they don't drive. Right. So he had to live within walking distance, but the walking distance sometimes would vary, right? So it's still sort of the same idea that you couldn't live right there because right. that, that's threading the needle. So maybe, you know, it was 45-minute walk, 30-minute walk. Maybe it was icy and snowy, right? In your, dad, in your dad's case, it was different. So I was just thinking yeah. about that corollary. Yeah, um, that's neat. I love pretty it. cool, right? But yeah. like you said, that's a passion project then, right? You're, like, you're t- turning down other financial opportunities to do something you're passionate about. Yeah. Yeah, and he, did you ever get really drawn in, hard into it? Was that something that that uh, you know he tried to draw you into, or did that ever cross your mind to go no, do the same thing? No, just the opposite. He said, "Don't you dare do it." Really? Yeah. yeah he's, and I understand why. There's, um, it's a really different kind of environment and business, right? And he he recognized that it's, there's a lot of cost involved in it. Yeah. Interesting. What? Yeah, that, that's, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine, I mean, I, I had a conversation with my minister once and he said, yeah, well, we can't go to the grocery store here near the church or any grocery store within three miles of the church because you can't shop there because somebody is coming down the church and wants to tell you uh, gossip or, you know, hey, did you hear about this person? So you really cannot mm-hmm. get through everything. Yeah. You've got to, you've got to venture away so i mean actually it might be a great thing that your dad had to drive an hour to the church because <laughs> then he was away, he was away from it from his normal daily life but yeah I, I can't imagine just your daily life be outside of the church how how difficult mm-hmm. that would be because you're being pulled all, a lot of different ways yeah and you know you're always often dealing with what well, you are dealing with a, a uh, volunteer organization and a lot of times you're dealing with people with a lot of needs. It's, it's kind of the point, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that can be very taxing and it can make a lot of problems. It's it's the nature of the church to be a hospital. Right. But, it, you know, it, it can be more like an ER. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I understood. Understood. So I want to I want to keep this story going. So we got to Denmark, right? Or yep. you did you come back to Texas and, and what, what next? I did. I came back to Texas. Uh, I actually had a failed interview with McKinsey in London. Um, and then I came, I came back and went to work for, for Collie Gillespie. 
Um, and if, in fact, he also hired at the same time, Jeff Hudson from my class. Oh, how about that? Yeah. And Jeff, Jeff, uh, did the, um, perseverance trick. He came up several times, just showed up in the front lobby and that just like you almost, that almost worked for you. He, yeah, he did well, work for it. Yeah. I mean, it, it didn't help that I, I was in a t-shirt and shorts when I barnstormed the interview <laughs> and had I been really prepared, but, but you know, um, you know, and, and Jeff, by the way, Jeff Hudson, name drop, is now at Pioneer Natural Resources. So mm -hmm. thanks for yeah. uh, the referral in there, Tim. I appreciate that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Collie Gillespie, this is a, I guess I'm going to call it a reserves house or a consulting mm -hmm. company really for, uh, you know, third party reserves, uh, you know, a, a pioneer like company yeah. might use Collie to, uh, you know, backstop their reserves for reporting to the to the uh, government. Is that basically right? That's basically right. There are petroleum engineering consulting companies come in three basic flavors, reservoir and uh, reserve reports, uh, field studies, and litigation support. And at the time, Holly Gillespie did mostly reserve reports, but a good deal of field studies with, with a litigation support as well. Uh, but no, they, they do third-party reserves for big names. Uh, Concho is one of their one of their clients, they sign off on all the reserves for Concho hmm. for public yeah. filings. Yeah, and it's a big deal. So I just want to chime in on this. I, I'm not the engineer in the room, but I do know that it's very important to submit uh, the correct data that you are <laughs> forecasting for reserves to the government. Otherwise, you're facing pretty significant fines. And I remember actually speaking to companies that had to deal with that. And and <laughs> nothing gets the attention of this, the sea levels and the board quicker than a six-figure fine over submitting your, the wrong data for reserves. Oh, yeah. You get, you get a comment letter from the SEC, and that's bad news. Yeah, your investors don't like that. Well, well now in the yeah. days of, of SOX, I guess it's uh, it's actually criminally liable as well. L liable, wow. yes. Practical, I don't know. Well, I see. You see why, right? Like, just from a very rudimentary level, it's, well, how much uh, money do you have in your bank? Got this much. Okay. Well, yeah. if you're leveraging that to get more, you know, and, and you're lying, there's problems there. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, the great, the, the thing that made me stick with, with uh, petroleum engineering was, you know, you could see this from our building, you could see the civil engineering lab and they're, they've got little slabs of concrete and they've got vices and they're just breaking concrete and they're measuring when the concrete breaks. And if you add this fiber, when does it break? Great. But these are all things you can actually pick up and measure and, and pound on, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to reservoir engineering. Yeah. yeah, I can know two feet away from the well with a pretty high degree of confidence exactly what's there and how it's going to react to whatever stimulus that we give to it. A hundred yards away from the well? I have no idea. Mm. I mean, I've, yeah. I've got a pretty good idea. And my guess yeah, yeah. may be as good as Dwayne's or better. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got to estimate reserves – I promise numbers. I promise that we're going to deliver this quantity of oil in the next 10 years. You're the weatherman. And so, I mean, and you know, and I'll, I'll put words in, in uh, Dwayne's mouth, but you know, you're wrong. Okay. You know, it's wrong. The number you give is wrong. No, you know, you're not a hundred percent accurate. That doesn't necessarily mean okay. you're wrong. Okay, but so how close to 100% are you? That's you what won't you need know. to tell me. <laughs> exactly. And so that's the kind of the, that's why you need uh, the reserves house to add that credibility to what we think. Yeah. This is what the conservative, conser the reserves estimators think. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in theory, this is just like an auditor for your financial right. statements. Yep. Because like you said, Jeremy, the reserves are the largest asset, but we're taking inventory of something that's a, a mile away from us underneath rock. And it's finite, but you, but it's also, as Tim explained a few weeks ago, isn't completely finite because new techniques could emerge. So I, how exactly do you forecast? And that's why you have P10s and P8s. So you, and P90s. So you bring in an independent third party who's supposed to be just the cold, hard facts. What's this really going to do? Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that Colleague Gillespie does and, and does well. And we, I was there for six years uh, and I did some reserve reports. But really what I enjoyed were the field studies and the litigation support. And then you know, the, sorry, I'm going to gonna prod him with the next step. So basically, at some point, you and Dr. Strickland say, hey, we'd like to do our own thing. Well, and just, I guess, just for go one, ahead. Put, a, put a pin in that real quick. I've heard things around reserve season can get really crazy, really <laughs> busy at Collie Gillespie, almost oh, yeah. dizzying. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So listen, I'll dizzy, tell you a story. Dizzy Gillespie. Story. This is the the chairman emeritus of Ryder Scott, which is another company. They're they're yep. the largest or the second largest. And uh, I was having drinks with him uh, once, and, and he was explaining to me. He says, "When we hire a new engineer, we tell them they can have off either Christmas morning or Christmas evening. They get to choose." Whoa. He says, "He I says, been, Tim, I should have been kidding. a reservoir engineer. You should have been <laughs> being Jewish." <laughs> He's okay with this both. My calling. I love Christmas. People are like, oh, Merry Christmas. Oh, that's right. You don't celebrate. I go, no, no, no. I love Christmas. Yeah, I have no yeah. obligations. I can order, order, eat Chinese food, watch all the movies all day. No, <laughs> no one's checking their phones. They're all with their families. <laughs> right? No, I love Christmas. Give me some work on Christmas. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, it is a sort of feast or famine thing. They also have some real downtime, some real loose, relaxing yeah. times. Um, other parts of the year, but it it is um, the people who do reserve reports are just like uh, tax uh, uh, professionals or auditors. There's a very hard yeah. deadline, and you've got to do most of a year's worth of work. So you you go from Collie Gillespie and you form the Strickland Group with mm -hmm. uh, with Doctor Strickland, and yep. you guys do kind of more of the same, but I think it's a little bit more field study, more uh, that kind of work, maybe some acquisition support. Things yeah. like that. Yeah, we did a, a lot of litigation support. So litigation support is really reserves and economics and field studies under cross-examination. Right? Everything that you produce has to be to the nines because somebody else with a PhD is going to try to deconstruct it and yeah. find every screw that you've made wrong. Every every place you fouled it up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. We got to work on some really neat, interesting projects. And so you were you basically you served as a an expert witness or evaluator for expert witnesses for you know quite a number of years, right? Yep. And yeah, you're still looking out for fraud. I mean, it's it's the same sort of principles. It's it's neat, right? I, yeah, I could see no. how that's actually passionate for you because you've been trained in this area and you know when something seems fishy and you know what those yeah. things are to look for, right? And it's it's a little less linear slightly than accounting. Right. Because there's just more creativity to it, I think. Yeah. And there, there are, as, as Tim says, more uncertainties. We, we can say this is the most probable answer, but this answer is just about as probable. And that one is yeah, it's, it's, it's equivalent as well. Yeah, it's a work in progress. Yeah. So we have three possible answers. All three could be true. 
This one over here that you chose, however, mm-hmm. not true. <laughs> that is not <laughs> lies. Yeah, and, that, and that's what often happens. It, litigation support's kind of a weird game. You can get um, you can get people who are really there more as advocates, uh, and some people who are more there as professional, uh, actual doing their presenting their own real opinions. So there were plenty of times I'd deconstruct an expert report that was fragile, and I'd turn one knob, and then I'd turn another knob, and another knob, and all of a sudden the value would implode by ninety percent. Wow. Yeah, yeah, not a, mm. not uncommon. Mm. Huh. Not uncommon. So, so I'm, I'm taking one more step. So now you've, you know, the Strickland Group, I guess you moved on and you're now a Dwayne Purvis uh, consulting engineer, stood up your own company. Is Something it like the same type of stuff or is it, how does it differ from what you did at the Strickland Group? Well, thanks for asking. Yes and no, it's similar. It's also different. I took several years to work for a, a producer here in town as a reservoir engineering manager. And that was really exciting. I love getting to nice. work with the, a bunch of young engineers. We had 11 or 12 plays, depending on how you wanted to count. And I was responsible for the reservoir engineering on six or seven teams. I really enjoyed that. Um, but when I went to start my own, I don't have a PhD. And I was I, part of the reason I left was I was really, really sick of litigation support. Um, it, it pays well in interesting problems, and I do like the the aspect of trying to do the right thing. Um, but the last couple of projects I did just wore me out. Mm. So uh, I went back to consulting, which I knew, but most of what I've been doing now is field studies and reserves and economics separately, separate from litigation support mostly. And are you focused on some, you know, I guess smaller operators, midsize, or yep. that kind of thing. Okay. Yep. Yep. So if you need a reserve report, mostly you need a name that's recognized. A colleague, Gillespie, Ryder Scott, and Edlin Sewell. The, their reputation is their primary asset. You can show up with a Edlin yep. Sewell report and somebody say, oh. But, you know, no, I don't have that kind of imprimatur. So most of what I do is help people when they're trying to make decisions, figure things out for themselves. And um, mostly I I work for people who are too small to have their own staff. Every once in a while, I'll work with somebody who's got an engineer or two and they need some additional help. But most of my clients are right now on the smaller side. This is incredibly common right now. Tim, I've brought this up a few times. I think it's part of why my business is gaining some traction. It's part of why I'm seeing this in a pervasive manner. The big companies had to slash headcount and then look to bring in expert SME level resources that are not employees. The the little guys were already in a tough spot because they probably didn't have those people to begin with, right? So somebody with your skill set, I can only imagine is you're sort of that layer of insurance before they go to the colleague Gillespie's or whoever, and they say, Hey, this is terrible. Now you're going to get hit with a big bill from us, or you're going to get a hit from a big bill by the government. Yeah, no, and that is part of what I do. I've several times helped people uh, do their SEC reports or, or go um, get something ready to take to somebody else. But I'll also help people figure out new plays. You know, the, uh, the strong play on the Eastern shelf. Yes. Okay. The the originator of that play brought it to me about what, four years ago, five years ago, and wanted to know if they could make a well. And we were able to show them how 
Um, it wasn't a marl. It wasn't a clay rich, impossible to frack limestone. What, what it was looking that way because of uranium radioactivity. And it was actually a solid play. So they were trying to decide how to spend money. They were oil, you know, second generation oil men, but not reservoir engineers. And uh, I, on, on my green light and field study, they did the project, raised money, and, and are doing really well. So wait, in the Buddha, so you're looking at logs. You're, you're looking at the logs and saying, mm -hmm. well, the reason your log is not is showing you this is because of the uranium. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So wow. I, I didn't know this part of the backstory well, of that so play. This leads to a lot of questions for me. So, so for you guys, as engineers, yes, but as reservoir petroleum engineers, ha what happens when you go to some place where you think you're finding oil, but all of a sudden you find another precious metal or product, helium or something else? What what do you do? Do you bring in a different kind of engineer to validate it? Like you tell the oil company, like sell this. It hardly, to hardly else? happens. It hardly happens. Really? Now, the, if you have a really, really rich helium in um, in the natural gas, it's like four percent. Okay. Um, right, maybe really, really rich would be five or six percent, but it's very uncommon for natural for helium to occur. And uh, notwithstanding the the first chapter of McCain's book on fluids. Um, we have no information about rare earth minerals in our produced waters. So it, it just doesn't happen. We, we find oil or we find gas very rarely. Occasionally we'll find pure CO2 and, and very rarely a, a sliver of helium. But so just the other day, I'm talking to somebody in Calgary that said, oh, what, what Crescent Point has, you know, what their big value prop is, they've got all this these it's it's a minerals rich area not necessarily for oil and gas in saskatchewan right ah. but there are precious metals and things like that there yeah so, so what does an oil company then do right how do they how do they know this has to do with the mineral ownership in canada they um a lot of the land in uh in canada is owned by private individuals in this in the same kind of land grant scenario that created union pacific resources Okay. Um, in the 1860s, they were given, they were given properties in a checkerboard fashion sure. for development, and then that has become a long-term source of of natural resource uh, mining and production. So it's it's not because it's coming out of the oil and gas; it's because it's coming out of the same land. That's it, right? But but do these companies know how to monetize that, or do they want to monetize that? Well, you know, well, Steve, like what the, do you do? I guess. Yeah. In the U.S., we don't have that problem because our uh, mineral leases are separate from our surface leases, are separate from our air leases. And uh, so the, the oil and gas leases we sign in the U.S. will explicitly exclude minerals, coal, anything at the surface. Yeah, cool. No, I don't know. I, I just you hear something on a call and you're like, wait a second. These guys are really <laughs> smart in this area. Well, ask some questions. <laughs> yeah, but I think I, I think, you know, I mean. The guys who are bringing, I mean, I, I'll, let's just say they do discover helium in a reservoir, you know, up dip or, you know, as an arbitrary thing. If it's rich enough and they can make money on it, they're going to figure out <laughs> how to produce it. I mean, it, it is yeah. fundamentally yeah. the same <laughs> physical thing that you're trying to do uh, to get it's that out of the yeah. ground. Helium, especially. Now, I don't think, I, trying to go... But Mine minerals, uh, mine uranium, for instance, in a 
you know, 5,000 to 6,000 foot deep. Well, yeah, that's, that's not happening. All right. All right. So, so, so to paraphrase in a, in a slightly different accent, it would be, <laughs> damn it. We're good at extraction. Okay. You don't need to keep asking these questions. We will extract it <laughs> if it's there. Oh, they can figure out a way to sell. If they can figure out a way to sell helium, they'll do it. Oh yeah. No, helium is fantastic. Um, yeah. because it, Last I heard, it was like two hundred dollars in MCF. Wow, that sounds right? good. Right, so you get just a couple percent, and and it's bucks up. Yeah, there you go. I'll start a helium company. All right, so one of the things that Dwayne that really drew me to yeah, you know, I want to I want to bring Dwayne on is is you know Jeremy and I were you know we we're trying to promote our podcast on LinkedIn and all that, but. And one of the things that you do and do very well, and you're not prolific, you're no DRW, you know, throwing stuff out every, every nobody. Let's, let's be honest. You're Tim. What are you, what are you doing? I'm just, what I'm saying is that Dwayne is that guy who had a good run. They're not the 27 Yankees. Okay. It's not like that. Well, no, but what Dwayne has done is he puts out really compelling content, technical oil and gas content. And, you know, he gets, he gets some run on some of them. I guess some of them maybe don't do so well. But And then mm-hmm. and he compounds that. He goes to uh, SPE luncheons and talks about these topics. And there's just the, the range of stuff that you put out and comment on and uh, go speak on is, is fascinating to me. That, and you speak with a certain amount of expertise that well thought out. Mm-hmm. Energy transition, uh, ESG. I don't know that I've seen you talk about uh, Bitcoin mining or anything like that yet, but not yet, you know, not yet, but you know, the most recent one, and it, it, this it's, it was a pet peeve of mine when I was coming, you know, as I was coming up in the industry, which was BOE. I remember if you use BOE, yeah, it was, you had to define it. Am I using the six to one ratio or a 10 to one ratio, or perhaps even a 21 ratio. So sometimes you would see in the annual report, if they're quoting or the quarterly report, if they're quoting BOE, I had to quickly go find, are they doing six to one or 10 to one? Mm-hmm. Because there was no, I guess, no SEC rule at the time on there's what is on. BOE. Okay, there's still it. Okay, great. So then what? So then you have to do a conversion or something to figure yeah. out the- Well, the, I mean, I guess there were, two, there were two arguments. You could convert based off of energy content and right. say, okay, there a how many thousands of cubic feet of gas is, you know, same energy content as one barrel of oil and you say, that's how you do your conversion. Or you could base it on the value of the gas. And so there was a, I mean, there was always a, is it 10 to one, six to one, 20? I think what we settled on 20, 10 to one is kind of the defender standard. Is that right? Dwayne? No, six to one, six to one, 10 to one, 10 to one, um, dissolved, a long time ago, but you're right. In the '90s and early 2000s, that was the common alternative. Yeah. So anyway, so basically, one of his papers he puts out, I'll call it a paper, is just a should we rename this thing? Is it is BOE really the right name? And and this it's been fascinating to watch the comments and all the people kind of piling on. I, you want to go through that a little bit, Dwayne? Yeah, sure. So look, we have a, a difficulty in the oil and gas are really different. Right. One's a liquid, one's a gas. Yeah, it just gets mushed in together. Right. It's oil and so gas. if you've got a well that's very you different, a well with a lot of oil and a little gas, or a, a little gas and a lot of oil, so how do you compare those? 
And it gets more complicated when you add in NGLs, which are kind of in the middle. But they all three have substantially different values. So rather than try to compare on what has now become commonly three dimensions between wells, we try to normalize it and condense it down to a single number, barrels of oil equivalent. Well, the, the energy equivalence is exactly what we were taught to use. And remember that uh, the NYMEX for natural gas didn't exist until 1990, and it was regulated into the early 80s. So the, the price equivalence wasn't really a thing. When we came out in, uh, I, will, I, I started working in 95. You were several years ahead of me, a couple years ahead of me. It's um, very old. Very old is what you just yeah. said. Look yeah, at that yeah, it's not that long ago. I was telling my son, 15 years is not what it used to be. <laughs> yeah. When you have, when you've, when you've lived uh, a lot more years than your son has. Yeah. That's right. That's right. But we, at that time, um, there wasn't all that big a difference between the energy equivalents and the price equivalents. It was, it moved around. It was often closer to 10 to one for a price equivalents. Yeah. But the, the two products have really separated. There was a point in time when they were more generally used and you, we, we, burned oil in that in power plants um, up mm. until the mid 80s. Uh, oh, yeah, I guess we were phasing out in that time period. And, and it, so there was a swap out. And so energy yeah. was a, a kind of sensible thing. And maybe the root value is the energy and it will revert to that. But it's, that is so far from true now. And I got tired of seeing uh, investor presentations brag about their BOE when they're high gas wells or lots of NGLs, and I'm, you know, this is not at all the same kind of cash flow as a, as a black oil, as a, a low gas well. So I, I proposed, you know, people have been doing this on the side, always talk publicly about the six to one or 5.7 to one, but then privately they'll often do a, a 20 to one. So I, I wrote this up and showed how the errors would look, you know, based on a price equivalence, Let's look at 20 years of history. How far off is it? And I suggested we do 20 to one for gas, three to one for NGLs, and of course, one to one for oil. Um, and we got some, we got some good traction on that. I, I proposed calling it barrel of value. Oh, I like that. As opposed to a barrel of energy. I think that's the one that, that I seem to see the most comments on was, yeah, yeah, BOV makes more sense based on what the conversion we're doing. And, you know, than boe this is really this is good stuff because because i can completely relate to this and and understand because i actually looked through the thread because it didn't happen that long ago and then tim's like come on it's time to get this guy on let's do it but (laughs) just even not being a a scientist engineer reading through it i'm like wow like if you're going to make this complicated for engineers how the hell is that supposed to be easy for everyone else well think of the investor trying to understand yeah. trying to understand BOE and like, and, it, and look at it. you're trying to compare southwestern which is mm-hmm. largely dry gas until very very recently mm-hmm. to a denbury resources mm-hmm. and they'll be quoting BOE i guess probably uh southwestern even uses mcfe rather than BOE in their report yeah. and trying to compare these two companies and you're thinking barrels and you're thinking what set what are we today? $73 a barrel? Are we really? Holy crap. So we're we're talking about barrels at $73 and you see BOE, but you're you're not right. If you're try, if you're using that BOE number to kind of equivalent to how much money Southwestern is going to be bringing in. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it's exactly the problem that I was chapped with. And it's, everybody knows it's a problem, but we just ignore it. Well, if we can all agree, then we can have something better. Is it time to the, for the SEC to adopt that or something? You know, I don't think so. Um, the SEC requires reporting and it has to be accurate, but they don't require any sort of conversion. All right. So, I mean, but these, but they're in charge of reporting to the public what the public, so the public oh, can understand. Should they be stepping saying. in to say, like, if you're going to quote BOE, it needs to be yeah. BOV and it needs to be this way? Yeah. So it, it's a it's a great question. I'm not sure that it rises to the standard of the SEC. I've worked for them several times to prosecute cases, and actually, I sent that article to two of the SEC engineers. Um, but the, the thing is, what they're looking for is intentionally misleading. Well, it's awful hard to say it's intentionally misleading when that's what everybody in the industry has used for yeah. at least my career. You know, but I mean, OK, they did step in when they changed the reserves rules. They did. In the, you know, what, 10 years ago mm-hmm. and say, well, OK, this is what. Yeah, this is what the five year rule means. Yeah, but that was actually loosening, though. They loosened the standards. It, well, in a lot of ways, you're well, right. Yeah, they, they made it easier, but they rule. also, you know, it's, what is it, uh, more likely than not, given that definition of a reserve, yeah. it's more likely than not to be a real number, uh, to yeah. be this this value. More, more probable than not, like more Roger Goodell once said, more probable than, anyways, you guys are throwing out these football terms that I even really, <laughs> six to one, 10 to one, you got the SEC. Uh, Meanwhile, okay. I'm just thinking about football over here. You guys are talking about all this engineering <laughs> shit. I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, let's, I'm thinking about football and you know my favorite? A golf tournament. Oh, look, yeah. So uh, Jeremy's got, he's promoting that's his handsome. golf tournament next week, Friday, October 1st. I think, futures. Be, I think it's the day after this comes out. We'll pretty much be locked in at that point, but lots and lots of nice swag. We got branded from futures things. Yep. We got golf ball giveaways, drinks, barbecue. It's going to be a good time. You know what my favorite term is though, if, of all the reserves, my favorite is uh, the definition of possible. It's less likely than not, which is to say probably not. Yeah. So why are we talking about it? <laughs> that just twisted my brain. Let Less likely than wait wait right less likely than not I I don't think I can compute that right now <laughs> less I've only heard more more likely than not right but well, we have another category Jeremy that's <laughs> you just possible. made that up that's not real that's not yeah, real and actually actually my uh, Dr Strickland's mentor um, Mr Cal- Mr uh, Gillespie Clark Gillespie said we really need a fourth reserve category so um, we have proved which is reasonably certain probable that's the I promise likely. number. Approved as I promised. Yeah. Yep. And probable is more likely than not. So that's like the, the central estimate and the most likely kind of number. Then we have possible, which is less likely than not. But we need a fourth category, and that's impossible. We need imp- yeah. a category for impossible reserves. Yeah, oh, well, that's, that's a, the red zone or whatever. The, the red zone. zone. Well, and this, this is a great point, though. I mean, it was, it was snarky, but he has a great point. We say there's a 10% probability at this end of the tail for proved. There is a low end, well, a high end of recovery. It's a very narrow probability. Technically, it could happen. And what he used to say is, it's also possible that a solid gold meteorite landed in my backyard last night, and I don't have to sit here and listen to this baloney. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I do want, I was going to go back to, so you do a lot of posting um, on what you're doing as far as with the SPE and and these papers. As a novice 
social media guy. I'm not all that prolific, but um, more than probably most people for sure. But how has that affected your business? Your your postings on LinkedIn or I don't know what else, what other pro, uh, uh, platforms you use. How has that helped Dwayne Purvis Consulting Company? Um, ha, has have you gotten business from that? Has it warmed it up, or or is it uh, you know lost business? It's really hard to say, Tim. Um, what my goal is for people to know that I'm good at solving problems and to remember me when they have a problem that needs solving. That's what we need to hear. All right, Jeremy. That's a good tagline. So Dwayne, you tell me, my friend, okay. where can people find you? What kinds of companies should be looking out for you? What's your email? All those good things. Since I yeah, think uh, I've really enjoyed this and I think you'd be a great resource for a lot of small companies I talk to. No, I appreciate that very much. Uh, I'm easy to find on the web. It's dpurvispe.com for my first initial last name, mm-hmm. professionalengineer.com. So, um, well, hold on. Spell Purvis. Just, you know, you got to be. P-U-R-V as in Victor, as my dad says. V as in Victor. Remember Purvis Ellison? You guys remember Purvis Ellison? Yes, football player. Basketball. Basketball. No, that I don't, apparently. He was tall. Uh, seven feet <laughs> plus. Okay. Anyways, so, that. He played on the. He's Celtics. a basketball player. He was tall. He played on the. He was very tall, even for a basketball player. And okay. he had like the big dreads. Uh, but anyways, he played uh for the Celtics. So when I was walking through, sometimes like in the gym, you just see people like that. And he walked through, and my buddy's standing with him. They called him Never Nervous Purvis, right? Because Nervous Purvis, no, Never Nervous Purvis. And he's like, "That's right, boys." We walk by and like, this is the best school. um, I I think that term goes all the way back, at least as far as my grandfather. And and the other thing that that goes back at least three generations is perv or big perv. Big perv. Right. You got to be careful now when you say that. That was always the the joke. That was always the joke. Wow. The big perv. Yeah, you're a big perv. (laughs) <laughs> well my, my friend who's my only friend who's a big perv let's make that very clear very much appreciated getting to know you this was a blast man hey thanks, thanks for, for coming on me. yeah great to be with you guys 